0: don't matter.
1: It's a maniac. It's gonna step on who
0: Hey hey it's Conrad Thompson and you're listening to 83 Weeks
1: with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on man? How are you? I'm doing great. Uh looking forward to uh, a busy week coming up. A little bit of travel, a little bit of pay-per-view business. A new SmackDown coming everybody's way, so a lot of great stuff going on. Having a blast.
0: Lots of great stuff happening here on 83 Weeks as well. Our topic today is such an important show to me. It's Fall Brawl 1996. And we should mention that today's episode is brought to you by Boost Mobile, the switch that gives you more. This show that we're going to talk about today, Eric, I told you off air that if you were here in person and we were together right now, I would give you a hug for, uh, because I, I sort of put wrestling down and it was in my rear view mirror and I was not watching for 93, 94, 95. And then one day I'm flipping through the channels, probably late August, 1996. And I see Hulk Hogan in all black. And I think, uh, is that Hulk Hogan? What is this? I'm so used to the baby face red and yellow all-American Hulk Hogan that Hulk Hogan wearing all black and growing a beard was just weird. So it captivated me, caught my attention. And I had never even seen Diesel or Razor Ramon. So I didn't know who those guys were. I just knew this guy is supposed to be a good guy. What in the world? And I found myself falling in love with Nitro. And this is my first pay-per-view back. So watching this show this week was such a joy brings me back to the height of my fandom. And, uh, I can only imagine what it must feel like for you because when you go back and watch this all these years later, you know, you guys are, are certainly rolling here and you've got some momentum, but you know, what's about to come and you're about to fucking own the wrestling world. That's never more evident than when this show fair to say.
1: Uh, well, you know, I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, we knew what was to come because we were taking it, you know, one day at a time, you know, one show at a time. I clearly, you know, we were on the beginning of, of a massive role um, in in terms of our success. But, you know, as you know, you know, and I've talked about this before on this show. You know, oftentimes when I go back and I look at these episodes, these pay-per-views from 20 years ago or more or Nitro or whatever it is you know you you kind of cringe a little you know because everything has advanced so much further you know the in ring product has advanced in in many respects, uh, or or evolved, I should say. Some people may not think of it as an advancement, but I do. But the in-ring product has evolved. The the production techniques that we use today are so advanced compared to what we used to do. Formatting, the way we set up backstage promos, so many of the things that we do today have advanced so much further that when you go back and look at them, it's kind of like going back and looking looking at your high school yearbook and seeing your, a picture of yourself when you thought you were really all about it. And you look at it 20 years later, or in my case <laughs> much longer than that. And you go, God, what a dork. And, and he, yeah, sometimes I have that same feeling when I go back and watch these shows, but I have to say, you know, when I knew we were going to do this show, I went back and watched it on the WWE network as I always do. And this is one of the shows I think probably one of the pay-per-views really that, I really got excited watching this. We we did so many things right, you know, for this pay-per-view, even leading into it. You know, the way we set up our stories, the, the intrigue around who's the fourth man, some really advanced storytelling devices that we use that we'll talk about throughout the show, I'm sure. Um, there was so many things that we did that were so far ahead of our time. And were probably in the day considered to be massive risks and breaking the 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 paradigm of what everybody thought was the wrestling model in in the day and and the way stories should be told during the day or at that time. that it, it really, I, I had so much fun watching it. I could probably sit back and watch it again. And pick out even more things that I'm, I'm excited about. There's some there's, and we'll talk about it. I don't want to give the whole thing away, as the show goes on. We'll talk about those moments that I wish I could have a do-over, or if we were going to rebook it, how I would how I would probably approach it today, having twenty some odd years more experience and, and the, you know the benefit of 2020 hindsight, but for the most part, really, really proud of this effort by, you know, the entire WCW team at that time.
0: Yeah. I'm going to recommend if you're an old school wrestling fan, uh, go watch this show this week. There's so much good stuff on here and there's some, there's some stuff that maybe doesn't age as well, but gosh, what a great show and what a great time to be a wrestling fan. Of course, we're talking about fall brawl, 1996 went down on September 15th. Uh, so the anniversary for the show, just a few days ago, uh, from Lawrence Joel Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, there's 11,300 in the building, 10,714 of those, paid a decent gate, but not nearly what's to come for WCW in the future. 153 grand and then another 52,000 in merchandise. It has a 0. 0.65 buy rate for 1.62 million dollars in pay-per-view revenue. And as you probably have figured out, Hulk Hogan is now a bad guy that happened in July. So just two months prior to this, of course, he won the world title and spray painted the NWO onto the big gold belt one month prior at the very first hog wild, uh, before it would be renamed road wild. And now we're back in a more traditional sort of WCW pay-per-view fall brawl. You know, that means war games and we're in the Carolinas. And we've talked about this a little bit before about how WCW just sort of, uh, made annual events, uh, at, at the same building. So for a long time, starcade was at the MCI center and for a long time, Halloween havoc was in Las Vegas and here for an extended run fall brawl finds itself in the Carolinas, is that just uh sort of homage to Jim Crockett promotions or, or why was North Carolina the right fit for fall brawl? Do you think?
1: Uh, well, i think part of it was you know the homage factor as you as you pointed out I, I think that there was still a desire on our part to kind of create a tradition keep in mind you know as a kid grown up in i'll, I'll, I'll talk about my, my wrestling fandom in Minneapolis is probably the most influential on me. Although I watched it obviously when I watched wrestling when I was a kid and growing up in Detroit. But you know, once I got to be a teenager into my early mid teens and I was able to travel with my friends and go to wrestling events without my mom or dad, um, you know, Thanksgiving was a big wrestling day and traditionally in Minneapolis, you know, Christmas day, Christmas evening I should say was a big traditional you know wrestling event in Minneapolis. So I've I've always believed or at least I believed that at that time things have changed now but I believed at that time that you know wrestling was a family event and the, the tradition Uh, Was a part of the reason why families kept coming back, you know, year after year, you know, professional wrestling has been a multi-generational family affair, if you will, that's kind of been passed down from father to son, from father to son, from son to father, you know for decades. And to this day, you know, you and I both have gone to conventions together and signed autographs and you see, you know, uh, a gentleman in his sixties or seventies coming up with his son in his thirties and forties. And he's got his son who's in his teens or early or early teens, early, early adolescent. And they all watch wrestling together. So I think that sense of generational viewing and participation and experience, is something that kind of just lent itself to trying to do the same thing in the same venues each time of year. And I think for a long time it worked. And part of it was, again, WCW, formerly the NWA, I guess, um, the heritage of of many of our performers, including Sting and Luger and Anderson and many of the other ones that we used at that time early on in WCW, were all born in that southeastern part of the United States. So it was just a natural fit.
0: Well, and it's probably a natural fit for this podcast and some of our listeners over at Express Services. Uh, graduation season just right now in the rearview mirror. So, a lot of folks probably looking to get their first gig. And if you're looking for a new job, maybe you should just let Job Genius power your job search. Here's the deal Job Genius offers free advice on job searching, resume writing, interviewing, and getting you the tips you need to ace your first day on the job. Visit expresspros.com slash job genius today or search job genius on YouTube and let that educational video series be your guide for entering the workforce. Job genius is brought to you by express employment professionals, a leading staffing company that employs more than half a million people a year. Express offers good paying jobs and administrative roles, including customer service, sales, and accounting positions, as well as the skilled labor jobs like drivers, forklift operators, welders, and even CNC programmers. Apply now at expresspros.com or just call your local office. You can even complete your application over the phone. You see, Express knows jobs, so it's time for you to get to know Express. An Express associate in New York said Express is far more professional than other staffing agencies, and they found me work right away. A job seeker in New Jersey said Express is simply the best. They're effective, efficient, and do what they say. When you apply for a job, you need a callback, an opportunity to interview, so let your local express employment specialists help you out. Job seekers never pay a fee at express and each week express has thousands of open positions. So don't go it alone in your job search, get to know express and find your local office right now at expresspros.com or on the express jobs app. And I should mention that business here continues to climb. And this is sort of the story of WCW in this era. September at 95, which by the way, is the month that Nitro started. Your average attendance is 2,140 fans. Now, because of the hype of the NWO and, and, and the consistency of good shows on Nitro, we're up 61% or to 3,454 fans by September of 96 and your gate, that's not up 61%. That's up 115%. Your average gate in September of '95 is a paltry 18,750 bucks. One year later, over 40 grand, 40,403 dollars. and ratings, by the way, they're up 21 percent as well. You did a 1.9 in September of '95, a 2.3 here in September of '96. We should mention that Raw was preempted on September 2nd, uh, of course, the holiday weekend, so Nitro does a great rating, 4.3. The next week, Raw comes back to a two point four, nitro still on top, three point seven. The September sixteenth show, which would be the night after this pay per view, Nitro once again does a three point seven, Raw's down to a two point one. On September twenty third, three point four for nitro, two for raw. And let's close out September on the thirtieth. Three point three for Nitro, two point three for Raw. Every single week you're winning. How does that feel in, in September of '96?
1: Uh, well, it was very validating, to say the least. And again, uh, it's hard to describe the feeling. Uh, and I don't want to be redundant in this, but you know when you've when you've been a distant number two you know when i came to wcw we were the number two wrestling company in the world but the gap between number one and number two it was so distant that it might have been measured better in light years um as opposed to numerically and it it kind of beats you down you start looking at yourself in a way as you know the, the inevitable number two and nothing is ever going to change and nobody really believes it can and no matter how you know, much we tried to convince ourselves and we would try to be each other's cheerleader in WCW, even when I first, you know, got into the management side of the equation, deep down inside, we were kind of always resolved to be maybe a better number two and, and, and maybe, you know, make a little more money and and increase revenues and profit margins and so forth. But deep down inside, we, we knew that we were kidding ourselves most of the time until we started thinking about the product differently and I don't generally like to put myself over in these things. But again, it it wasn't because I was, you know, lying in bed awake at night, you know, coming up with ways to improve the product initially, at least it was because I had a, you know, figurative gun to the back of my head. Once nitro was, you know, put on my radar and I was, it was a mandate. It wasn't a request. It was a mandate. And I knew I had to either sink or swim. There there was no, there there was nothing in the middle. And that forced me to start thinking about the product as differently as I possibly could. And I i know I've said this before, but I don't think I can overstate it or say it too often. You know, when you're in a competitive environment, and I'm talking about a generally competitive environment like television was and still is to this day. So in many respects, it's far more competitive now than it's ever been simply because you're not just competing against a product in your same genre. Uh, you're competing against all other forms of, you know, platform viewing and just viewing habits and patterns have changed so much over the last 20 or 25 years. But I think in any time you're in a, in a a a really do or die kind of competitive situation. And I remember saying to myself, I'm my, I have three choices. I can be better than the WWF at that time. It was the WWF. I could try to be better than them at what they're already great at. I looked at the odds of that. If I was a a gambler and i was putting money on our, our 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 proposition as far as being better than them at what they were already good at with an audience that they already had that was a very loyal audience the odds of you know winning that bet were pretty slim if if existent at all um, i knew i could be different than them that was completely within my control there was nobody preventing me from making a list of things that that we could do that would make us decidedly different than the WWF and give the fans a chance to vote on it with their remotes or by default, if I wasn't different than in a way that was compelling for the audience and interesting for the audience, I would be by default less than. So it was the better than different than less than kind of formula that I focused on. I immediately, you know, eliminated any effort or or resolve to try to be better than the WWF at what they were already fantastic at and try to take away an audience that was already loyal to them for decades. I knew I didn't want to be less than the the WWF. That wasn't an option. So I was forced after thinking through it and visualizing it. I was forced to m- find as many ways to be as different as I could possibly be. And not just the colors of the ring mat and the ring ropes and the lighting and the graphics. Those are all superficial things. They're all important. Don't get me wrong. But they fundamentally, they don't change the way someone feels about a product, about a television product. I knew I had to change the way the audience felt about us us meeting WCW felt about our brand felt about the way we told our stories. I had to change the way that, that the audience felt about our characters. And once that became clear to me, it, it, I didn't make a wholesale change across the board, but many of the things that we did in terms of the, the way we were telling stories and the way we presented our characters started having pretty dramatic, almost instantaneous kind of positive reactions, as you kind of pointed out. By this time, in the fall of 1996, you know, in terms of your, what your question was, how did it make me feel? It was validating because those changes that I envisioned that forced us to be different than the competition were beginning to manifest in higher ratings, higher gates, as you pointed out, better pay-per-view buy rates, and just a general energy. Whether it's in the arena, when we were putting on a, whether it was a pay-per-view or a live event or a nitro, whatever it was, whether it was the energy in the arena, whether it was the energy in the locker room, whether it was the energy with the production staff who had previously for five or six years been walking around like whipped puppies. You know, that they just were defeated before they even got to work every morning. They felt defeated. They felt unwanted. They didn't really feel like part of the Turner organization because it was made clear to them that nobody really wanted them to be on the in, in the catalog anyway. And then all of a sudden, to, to completely turn that on its head and have people within Turner Broadcasting, not all of them, not the ones that were really important other than Ted, but many of the people that... Yeah, up until that point, didn't really want to be seen hanging around with WCW people, didn't really want to talk about WCW as part of the Turner organization. All of a sudden, those people were calling and asking for backstage passes. And, hey, my kids, you know, it it, it needs to have somebody come and talk to their class. Can someone from WCW come? That had never happened before. And as insignificant as that may seem, from an organizational perspective, it was massive. It changed the way everybody felt, not just the fans, not just the talent, but everybody from production to people that worked in the office to the security guard, you know, in the CNN center. Everybody felt different about the product. And that, I think, was one of the most rewarding things. And this time in particular is when it really really became obvious to us and we started really feeling it for the first time.
0: Well, it became obvious that the NWO was a growing organization here as well. On the August 26 nitro DiBiase shows up in the crowd and he's counting from four and then five, the implication being that he's the fourth member of the NWO behind, of course, Scott hall, Kevin Nash, Hulk Hogan, that would make him number four, but then he shows the thumb meaning, Hey, fifth guy coming up, allegedly. According to the rumor and innuendo, DiBiase was supposed to be the fifth and maybe somebody else was supposed to be in there before. And there's been some names that have been discussed, Sean Waltman and the British bulldog. Do you remember having discussions about perhaps bringing bulldog in here?
1: Absolutely none. You know, and that is no, nothing disparaging at all meant in that statement. Um, but again, casting now, one thing that I did do well, at least in the beginning, and one thing that I learned very quickly, and I I want to be honest about this, it's not, you know, when when the whole NWO idea was just loosely forming in my head long before I knew Scott Hall and, and Kevin Nash would even be available, I don't want to suggest that I had envisioned this takeover, hostile takeover group, as it's referred to here, and I think it's important to also note historically, I think we hear the term takeover used a lot now, I don't know if this was the first time it was ever used, but I think in terms of the context of how we introduced the NWO and Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and established the hostile takeover, specifically on this pay-per-view, we branded it fairly strongly. Um, It it might have been the first, if not the first, uh, very close to it. And I think it was probably one of the more, uh, at least, at the very least, if it wasn't the first time, the hostile takeover kind of – theme had been introduced to sports entertainment. If it wasn't the first time, it was probably done better than any time previous to that. Uh, but I don't want to suggest that I had this, you know, casting vision right. that I, I wanted, you know, the, the, my characters in this hostile takeover, uh, to be, you know, kind of the, uh, anarchists and street thugs and, You know, the look that we ultimately came up with. But once we saw Kevin, once we saw Scott, once the NWO began to, you know, take shape and form, you know, we were careful, at least in the beginning, about how we cast it. Now, I've admitted this so many times on this show, I've talked about it ad nauseum, yes, the NWO eventually grew too big, the casting became weaker and weaker and weaker but at the early stages when we're talking about the fourth or the fifth guy, um, Sean Waltman was discussed because he was a natural fit if you were a casting director in Hollywood and you were producing a movie on the NWO even if you didn't know who Sean Waltman was as as a performer, he had that look he had that vibe about him, and obviously with the character and the history that he had with Scott and kevin it was even more of a fit but british bulldog was a square peg and that round casting hole if you will there was no fit at all with british bulldog and there was never a conversation about him great talent valuable performer an amazing asset no, no question about that but not in that role
0: we should also mention this is the nitro where hogan hall and nash attack sting luger and the horseman and basically leave them all laying and then hogan Spray paints NWO on everyone except Lex Luger and then spray, uh, spray paints like a black streak down the middle of Ric Flair's head and back. Um, amazing heat here. One of the first times that we get to see this spray painting, all the guys act. And, um, you know, I know that for whatever reason, there's lots of people who always sort of raise their hand and take credit for this thing or that thing. But something a lot of people say is that when it came to building heat for the NWO every week on Nitro, Kevin Sullivan was pretty hard to beat and pretty integral in that process. Do you have anything you
1: want to – No, I would agree with that, Conrad. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I I absolutely would agree to that. And, and, you know, one of the reasons that Kevin Sullivan came to WCW when Dusty was was really booking early on when I took over uh, management in WCW is Dusty said, I need somebody – that can that can book heat Right, You know, and Kevin, that was, that was Kevin, uh, that's according to Dusty. And I had, you know, I I had no experience in creative, you know, when I took over WCW zero, I hadn't spent five minutes in a creative meeting when I took over WCW. So it was all new to me. And I, not by choice, but out of necessity, I had to rely on people that had more experience than I did, whether it was the talent in some cases, or the booker who, who was in that chair at that particular time. And in this instance, it was Dusty Rhodes. And Dusty said, when it comes to book and heat, Kevin is one of the best. I will say that, you know, in watching this show, as I told you offline, before we started this broadcast, looking back at it, yeah, there's some do-overs I wish I could do. There's some bad choices. Clearly there are some, and we'll get, we'll talk about it, but, um, Kevin for his faults, which we all have, you know, none of us are a hundred percent complete when it comes to creative, um, Kevin's strength without question was booking heat. And many of the more successful finishes or beats or moments that really stand out when you look at the body of work, you know, that is the NWO were generated, if not completely by Kevin in large part by Kevin.
0: I'm curious. Why don't you think today when, you know, the wrestling is is thriving again, whether it's MLW or impact or new Japan, or, you know, obviously AEW and WWE. And there's, there's so much opportunity in the wrestling landscape. Why don't you think Kevin Sullivan is involved somewhere behind the scenes? So as much as he's booked and created and as thick as his resume is, it feels like a natural fit for him to have a spot somewhere.
1: Do you have more freestyle, a guess as to why maybe that's not the case. You know, I've thought about that myself, especially after, you know, having reconnected with Kevin, thanks to you um, at StarCast and a couple other events. Um, I ran into Kevin about a year and a half ago at StarCast, and that's really the first time Kevin and I had been in the same room together in almost over 20 years. And it was such a great, great opportunity to reconnect with Kevin. And he is... You know, like all of us, I think he's gotten wiser, uh, probably able to reflect back at some of the the choices, you know, that he made business wise and, and personally um, and reflect. And he's probably a much better person all the way around, you know, uh, a, as a result of just getting older and wiser. Um, he's a very talented guy. I think he probably still could if he wanted to be. And I think that's probably my answer. Does Kevin Kevin Sullivan really want to be involved in the business again. He hasn't gotten he hasn't lost any feel. He 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 maybe he's been dormant for a long time. And trust me, I know that feeling. You know, when you're not thinking about the business of the wrestling business, especially on the creative side for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, You know, it's a little bit like ring rust. It doesn't come back overnight. It's not like you can flip a switch and be right back to where you were 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago in terms of your feel for what works and what doesn't work. Combine that with the fact that what works today, or excuse me, what worked 20 years ago or 15 years ago or even five years ago won't necessarily work today. So, you, two things you have to do. If, if I'm Kevin Sullivan and I was his manager, I would say, and, and he said to me, okay, manager, I'm thinking about maybe breaking, you know, back into the business again and, and tapping in one last time. How should I go about that? I can tell you from personal experience, just even most recently with WWE, the first thing that I would do would, would be to immerse myself in the product that exists today. Look at what works today. Because the natural tendency I, for anybody is to and I don't care how on top of your game you are and how active you may be in this business today your natural instinct is to go back to what worked recently or Five years ago or four years ago as a starting point doesn't mean you're going to do it, but as a starting point, you're going to reflect back to, and I think the same thing happens with movie producers and television producers. That's why we see so many, you know, the new, whatever, you know, in, in the feature film business, they're, they're rebranding or reintroducing old brands. You know, people go back to a formula that works. And and I think in wrestling, for a guy like Kevin Sullivan or anybody else that's been out of it for a long time, I think you have to really understand what's working today and why it's working today. And then start applying once you've kind of, you know, reengaged that, you know creative muscle again and and cuz that that muscle that in your brain that creative muscle much like the muscles in your body there's a muscle memory there there's a creative muscle memory i think that exists but before you start trying to use it you've got to condition it and i think you have to condition it into uh, in a way that allows you to really understand what's currently working and then start applying I think some of the formulas that have worked for you in the past. So I think with Kevin, he's been out of it so long. And I don't know. And I certainly don't want to say anything that would offend Kevin, but I don't know if he has the confidence uh, because he's been out of it so long to re-engage. I don't know if he's waiting for somebody to give him a call and say, Hey, Kevin, yeah, we'd like to bring you in and just have you give us some thoughts on, on how we might make our product a better product. Um, Or maybe he's just happy. Living where he's living and doing what he's doing, and I can understand that too. That's also a big part of it. As you get older, and he's settled into a good life. I, when I talked to him at Starcast, he was, he had a, he has a very good life living, you know, in Washington. He likes being by the water. He likes fishing. He, it's just always been his life, and he's pretty content. So he may not feel the need to. I don't know, but I think he's a valuable asset.
0: I would agree. And, um, if he wants to do something, I hope he finds a spot. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't know that he wants to, but I know that Chris Jericho was looking for a spot and he made a debut here on August 26th. That same nitro that we talked about that ended with the NWO leaving everybody laying. He's going to make his debut against Alex Wright. And of course, most recently you'd probably seen him on ECW television and he did the one world's collide pay-per-view with you guys. And this is really his first big break. And, That episode, by the way, does a 4.3 rating and a 7.2 share. So home run episode to wrap up August for WCW. And there's some other good news. The restraining order hearing involving the WWF lawsuit against WCW for trademark infringement was found, uh, to be settled out of court. You guys were able to figure out a compromise and a consent order was signed by both sides and Meltzer would say. WCW agreed to not have any employees or independent contractors who work for the company call Scott Hall either Razor Ramon or the bad guy, or call Kevin Nash either Diesel or Big Daddy Cool. In addition, WCW is not allowed to state that either Hall or Nash currently work for the WWF. Since WCW wasn't about to do that anyway, it appeared to be pretty much an amicable deal. Now, I mention this because famously it's going to come out that you guys had some sort of internal memo where you referred to Scott Hall as Razor, and they're going to sort of hang their hat on that. What do you remember about hearing that, hey, uh, somehow they got a hold of our memo and somebody at the office typed Razor, not Scott Hall, and now they've got heartburn about it.
1: Yeah. The the WWF, Jerry McDivitt and his team got it. Well, through discovery, um, they were able to. You know, request all of our formats and documents and internal memos and emails and all the things that go along with this type of litigation. And they were able to find in a rough draft uh, that was internal only, obviously, um, that someone had referred to Scott Hall as Razor Ramon or Razor. Um, we did. It happened. There's, there was no way around it. It was there in black and white. Now, let's put some context around that. And I'm not trying to defend it or justify it. It is what it is. It was what it was. However, um, I think common sense would suggest that we knew we were never going to present Scott Hall as Razor or Razor Ramon on camera. We didn't when he first showed up. He was Scott Hall. But as is often the case, and this is just kind of something that happens in this unique little universe that we live in called sports entertainment or or professional wrestling at the time, that out of respect, you tend, one, I should say, one tends to refer to a wrestler's, you refer to a wrestler by their character name, not by their first name. And that's, to me, when I'm out in public in in. And I'm with my friend, Terry Belea. I never call him Terry. I always call him Hulk. If there's just one other person in the room, I refer to him as Hulk. That's, that, that's not markdom. That's not fandom. That's respect. And I think whoever was putting that one-sheeter rough draft together just kind of fell into that natural sociological kind of mandate that you you refer to a character as or an individual as their most recent character name so inadvertently not with any intent to exploit that name or that trademark once that format were to hit air it's somebody wrote down razor referring to the to scott hall instead of referring to him as scott hall I understand how it happened and why it happened, as I just explained. It was just kind of natural. You know, when I see talent today uh, in WWE, I, I don't I, I don't refer to them by their real names, I refer to them by their character names. It's just what I've grown up learning to do. It's how I was trained, it's how I was conditioned in this business. It's it's like martial arts. You know, when I first got really, really involved in, in martial arts. You were taught that anybody who is brown belt or above, you refer to them as Mr. as a sign of respect because they've achieved a level of success or or, or a certain level of discipline and, res- and, and and that and with that comes respect from lower belt rankings. And to this day, when I see Ernest Miller, and if we're in a group of people, he's not Ernest, he's Mr. Miller not because he was my instructor or not because of any other reason other than he he has attained a very high level of success in his sport. And just the way I've been conditioned, I refer to him as Mr. Miller when I'm in public. Now, the same kind of thing is true in professional wrestling. At least it was. Maybe not as much as it used to be. But like I say, I know how it happened and I know why it happened, but it's, it's kind of funny that you know, the WWF and Jerry McDiff it's not funny, it's understandable. Jerry McDivid's a great lawyer. And he was able to camp out on that and make a point and 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 won on that point.
0: We should mention there is another legal issue sort of hanging out there. Sean Waltman thought he could leave and they agreed to give him a release. But now, because of the way they've handled Hall and Nash. They're not really wanting to, uh, allow him to appear on TV and you use any of his old mannerisms or dress the same way or look the same way. Obviously, you know, everybody knows you can't use the name one, two, three kid. And allegedly he was going to be the guy who debuted before DBSI, but this legal wrangling meant that DBSI would debut first instead. What do you remember about them trying to tie up Waltman here?
1: You know, I, I don't remember the details of it. I wasn't involved in it. So the, the reason I don't remember is because I wasn't involved. I know that there was an issue, uh, but the details of that issue were being dealt with by probably Nick Lambros and Diana Myers at that time. Um, but I, I, I know that there was a challenge and I know that there, it, was, it wasn't it was a smooth transition, let's put it that way. I do, I do remember um, – the one element of it is, you know, okay, we can't use one, two, three kid. We knew that that wasn't like news to us, Sure, but that's how he became six. And that was my idea. It's like, okay, let's one, two, three equals six. Let's put it on a pool ball. And now he's six. That's where that came from.
0: And I think coincidentally, he became the sixth member as well. So, It worked a few different ways. Uh, he debuts right after this fall brawl show that we're talking about, but. Uh, I guess it's the next night on nitro September 16th, in fact, but allegedly he was ready to go and thinking he would be good to go at hog wild back in August, but all of this WWF back and forth nonsense delays it. Uh, Mike Tanay debuts as the third announcer on, uh, the September 2nd nitro Talk to me a little bit about Mike Taney, and we haven't really spent much time talking about him on the show here. How does he uh, first come to you? How do you become acquainted with him? And why is he the right guy for the third seat?
1: Uh, Mike Taney came to me through Zane Bresloff, the late Zane Bresloff, who was a pretty, pretty close friend of mine. Uh, Zane used to love going to Las Vegas. He used to love the gamble on sports. And Mike Taney was very active in that space. Uh, at the time. Mike Tenney was also a very uh, knowledgeable wrestling fan when it came to th- all things going on outside of the U S he really had a, a, a close watch on what was going on in Japan. He he understood and was very knowledgeable about uh, Lucha Libre and the things that were going on in Mexico. And uh, Zane introduced me to him and I was so impressed with his knowledge that really didn't exist in WCW. You know, a lot of us knew of, you know, Lucha Libre. We knew of what was going on in Mexico and kind of had a very, very, uh, well, we had a very little understanding of it all. We knew what was going on. We were familiar with it. But in terms of what was really happening and why and who was really uh, influential in, in Mexico and why. Um, we weren't paying attention to it. you know. It's just it, it was what it was. Mike, on the other hand, was a walking, talking encyclopedia. And I felt like that was missing. I knew that I wanted to introduce a lot more uh, international type talent in our type. I wanted to introduce more international talent on our show. I wanted to bring in a lot more of the, the luchadors from Mexico. I wanted to bring in more Japanese. And just bringing in the luchadors and bringing in the Japanese just for the sake of bringing them in, without being able to do a great job in the announce team on the announce team, in telling their backstories and and a lot to being able to comment on those performers in a way that allowed the audience to feel like they were learning something, and all of a sudden you know care about some of this talent uh, in a way that you wouldn't achieve if you just plopped them out you know, dropped them out in the middle of the ring and had a great match. Great. You had a great match. Whoa. But if you don't if you don't know their backstory and you you can't make them relatable to the to the audience, then it's just no more than a great match. And Mike was fantastic at that. He was, I loved him being not a, you know, you have a play-by-play guy who's really, his a play-by-play person, in in my opinion, is to help dramatically relay the story of what's going on inside of the ring. And when Vern Gagne used to tell me, you know, a good play-by-play man uh, is someone who could describe what's going on in the ring. So someone who perhaps was blind could imagine that match. And your color commentator is there to do just that, to provide color, to give context, to create emotion that may not be created in calling a match and describing what's really going on inside of the ring. In, a, in an exciting way, obviously, but your color commentator can kind of tilt that commentary and help tell those stories from a a, a protagonist kind of position or an antagonist position, heel or baby face, whatever you want to call it. Um, and just add life to the commentary. But my feeling was a guy like Mike today could come in as the third man, and really add a level of detail and backstory and history and context to the play-by-play in color in a way that would make the, the, the commentary booth a much more efficient and effective way of painting the picture for our audience from an, from an audio perspective.
0: Well, we want to paint a picture for you right now, and it's a picture about saving money, my friends. When you switch to Boost Mobile, you're going to get more. So much more that you're going to be surprised how much more at every turn. How about this? It's because Boost doesn't offer just one great thing, it offers many great things like our super reliable, super fast nationwide network. But there's more. How about four lines for just $25 per line per month with unlimited gigs for data, talk, and text? Unlimited. There's even more though. Check this out four free LG stylo five phones for the whole family. Of course, we're talking about boost mobile, the switch that gets you more. And this is such a cool offer. I I don't know that I've ever even heard of unlimited gigs of data with, with four lines and four free phones. This is how are they making money on this, Eric?
1: I don't know, brother. I said this to you last week. The only way this deal could get any better is if Boost Mobile was paying its customers to use the service. And I used to joke, Vern Gagne used to joke about that. I guess it's not really funny, but in a way it is. When things were really, really um, tough for Vern, he thought, I know how I can make more money. I'll get the wrestlers to pay me to be on my television show. Well, (laughs) this is about the same thing. I'm sure Boost is in great shape. But the only way that this deal could get any better is if the customers were being paid by boost to use it. I, mean, I don't know how a deal can get any better than this. I really don't.
0: It's unbelievable. One more time, four lines, $25 per line per month, unlimited gigs of data. We're talking talk text, the whole thing, but there's more Four free LG stylo five phones, perfect for the whole family. Boost Mobile, the switch that gives you more, offers and coverage, not available everywhere. Free phone requires port in, additional terms and conditions apply. Visit Boostmobile.com or your nearest retailer for details. I just don't know how they're making money. I, I know we talk about business a lot here, but I don't know how they're making money for that. Like I had a check when we first got the copy for this a couple of weeks ago. Before I did this, I was paying more for just one line. I mean not not counting what everybody else is doing. I'm saving money. You will to boost mobile, the switch that gives you more. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the British bulldog again. I know you said that, you know, there wasn't a plan for him to come into the NWO, but I mean, that's clearly a talent you'd like to have in WCW, uh, and it was reported multiple different ways that you guys were in negotiations here in 96. Of course, he winds up resigning with the WWF instead what would the creative have been? I mean, he had been with WCW before and obviously you are in the middle of a little bit of a war. Would he have been on the WCW side of things in this NWO war or would he not really have participated in that angle at all? Do you think?
1: Well, there was no creative, you know, put in place prior to negotiations or during negotiations. Um, looking back it, Clearly he would have been, when I say clearly, because he, as we talked about earlier, from a casting perspective, he would just would not have fit really on the NWO side. Uh, but he he to answer your question, yeah, I, I can imagine he would have very easily fit on the WCW side of the equation. The real impetus and desire to sign Davy Boy had a lot more to do with his value for us in terms of international touring. So it wasn't as much of a creative decision necessarily, not that there wouldn't have been creative for him and not that that wasn't important, but the the reason that we really wanted to sign David boy Smith was because of his value internationally. So it was more of a strategic acquisition as opposed to a creative one.
0: Talk to me about the giant. You know, we, we haven't spent a ton of time talking about his situation here, but just a couple of weeks after Hulk Hogan beats him for the title at hog wild, he turns on Randy Savage to join the NWO Why the sudden turn for the giant, lots of people, including people you don't really like have sort of freestyled that maybe the original plan was that Davy boy was coming into the NWO and you've shot that down. And when that doesn't happen and he winds up re-signing with the WWF, you feel like, well, we need to deliver another member and that other member becomes the giant. And there would be some criticism that this is a, a swerve for the sake of a swerve, a surprise for the sake of a surprise, because he didn't sort of fit the mold of we're coming down from the other company to do a takeover. He was never with the WWF. Talk to me about the giant. And and do you think in hindsight, maybe that was one
1: you wish you had back, you know, first of all, that rumor and innuendo that suggested that Davy Boy Smith was going to be a part of the NWO was flat out wrong. It just was. And the same individual who you know last week, we didn't beat up on this too much, but last week, you know, that same individual wrote, you know, in his dirt sheet that the Ready to Rumble movie was really about the tragic, you know, circumstances surrounding Owen Hart. I mean, that's what that's what he reported. And nothing was further from the truth, which is usually the case or so often the case in so much of what is reported in that kind of a format, a dirt sheet. It's just flat out wrong. So the premise of that rumor and innuendo suggesting that, well, since Davey Boy Smith wasn't going to be the fourth guy, there's pressure on Eric Bischoff to deliver a fourth guy. So he just chose the giant is, again, fundamentally, profoundly incorrect. It just is. So since the entire premise of that rumor and innuendo was false, I can only talk about why the the decision was made, which had nothing to do with the rumor and innuendo. Um, clearly, we we knew we wanted to you know we wanted to have a war. We knew going we knew we had something hot. We knew in order to have this WCW versus NWO war we had to build up the NWO roster. You can't have a war when you've got a, a, a roster of 35 guys or 45 guys in WCW against three guys in NWO. I think even dirt sheet writers could do the math and figure that one out. So we knew go, going into this war premise in this storyline that we had hoped would last for quite a while that we had to build the ranks. And the rationale behind Paul was to give, the NWO because they were outnumbered um, to give NWO that one massive heater, that one the giant that you know even though the odds may be stacked against WCW, WCW had the heavy artillery, you know in addition to Hall and Nash and 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 obviously Hogan, so that was the logic behind it. It was nothing to do with the pressure and the swerve and feeling to you know I know that's the underlying narrative that certain people like to write about or did back then. Um, but it just wasn't true. It, that wasn't true. It had nothing to do with the creative. It wasn't like I was trying to, Oh, I, I didn't wake up every, you know, Monday morning thinking, okay, how am I going to swerve my audience tonight? I know that's a narrative because we did, we did use a lot of swerves. We did keep the audience guessing. If you notice, you know, one of the, the things that launched this whole storyline was who's the third man, a big surprise, a swerve. Yes. And by the way, it worked. The, the underlying premise here or theme, I shouldn't say premise. The theme here is who's WCW's fourth man, we went back to something that worked. And yes, you know, we used a lot of diversions and a lot of swerves, as they're called in a wrestling business, uh, misdirects, if you, want, if you want to be more technical about it. We used a lot of misdirects to keep the audio, audience off balance and guessing. Again, going back to, you know, the launch of Nitro, uh, one of the things that came out of that, and I'm going to go a little into the weeds here, so be prepared. One of the things that really became crystal clear to me as we were developing the strategy and the creative strategy for Nitro business strategy, and creative strategy, was we did a tremendous amount of research. We did focus groups all over the United States. We did focus groups with current WWF fans at that time. We did focus groups with lapsed WWF fans. We Same thing with WCW fans, current, lapsed. We did focus groups with people that eh, kind of peripherally they'll watch every once in a while, but they weren't huge fans. And over the course of, God, I think we did this research over – I don't know, 15 or 20 different cities. It was, it was a lot of work. I was traveling all over the country doing it and we'd sit and and we would watch these and there were sometimes 15, 20, 25 people in these focus groups of all age, you know, all ages, men, women. And we would, they would watch a show. For example, they would watch a WWF show on tape and they would all be hooked up to these little dial meters. And these dial meters were all Integrated together so that all of us from WCW or Turner Broadcasting, who were sitting behind this one-way mirror, so that we could see out and they couldn't see us, we were watching this focus group watch the product. And while the product was, while they were watching the product, the the focus groups were instructed that when they saw something they liked, turn the dial to the right. If they really love it, turn it all the way to the right and peg the meter. If they watch something that they didn't like, turn it to the left. If they hated it, just peg it to the left. So what would happen is, is these dial meters were integrated on a computer. We could literally watch the average reaction of 25, 15, 20, 25 different people in a graph on our version of that same show. So we could look almost like minute by minute, second by seconds. We could see how the audience was reacting to certain interviews, to backstage promos, if you will, to in-ring promos, to action, to the events that led up to action, so that you could really get a sense of what the audience really enjoyed. And out of all of that, out of all of that research, I walked away with two or, di- two or three different – in every every focus group, you'd walk away with a little piece of information that you could apply. And, you know, research is something – I'm going to go into the weeds even deeper here. Research is great. I'm I'm a firm believer in research. The more data I have to work with, the better I like it. However, research can be a very dangerous things, thing if it's in the wrong hands. It's like, you know – giving a five-year-old a loaded weapon. You know, if they don't know how to use it, it it can be a horrible, tragic event. And research can almost have the same devastating impact on a product. If you have people, if you have executives that don't really understand how to apply that research, then it, it it can work against you. So despite the fact that we got tons of data, You know, uh, the the two or three things that I took away from that, eh, there's probably more, but let's say there's three things I took away from it was one, the audience wants to be surprised. They crave it when they're watching a wrestling show, despite the, you know, four star, five star mentality that is so prevalent in today's product the f- and and maybe you know today's a little bit different i'll, I'll admit that but back in the at this period of time 95 96 97 98 the wrestling audiences that we did massive focus groups on um suggested to us that they really above all else they wanted to be surprised above all else they loved the tension right before the action and to kind of give you a parallel example of that it would be like if you're watching a western I'm aging myself here, but if you're watching a Western and there's always that scene in, in the old Westerns from the 50, 60, 70s, whatever eighties, where the two gunfighters meet in the middle of the street at, at, at noon or whatever. And there's that tension that builds right before, you know, somebody draws first. The same kind of reaction happens in wrestling, wrestling fans in our focus groups back then, things have changed. Admittedly back then, it wasn't so much the action that they appreciated was the build-up to the action. Those moments, Conrad, if you and I were coming face to face in the middle of the ring and you, you were the baby face and I was the heel, the slower we came together and the more tension we built in that one moment before one of us actually landed a blow, that is the peak or was, I should say, that was the peak across the boards in our focus groups. So yes, did I try to surprise the audience? Of course I did. Did I, did I do it too often? Maybe I did, but it, it worked really well as, as we've talked about here in this era. Um, they really love cliffhangers. They wanted, they wanted you to leave them wanting more, not give them so much that they wanted less. So did I try as best I could as often as I could, to create a show that rather than leaving with a finish or leaving in a way that kind of put a period at the end of the sentence for that particular episode, did I try to find ways to create a sense of a cliffhanger? Of course I did. Did I overdo it? Yeah, you can argue that I'll buy that. I'll take it. Um, but the, the surprise or the swerve, or the misdirect, however you want to call it, was something that the audience and our focus groups told us they wanted more of. And yes, I did it a lot, but not just because I was in the mood, because I was informed by a vast amount of research that didn't come from dirt sheets that that's what the audience wanted. And it had nothing to do with my personal taste and me just doing it for the fun of doing it and, and swerving the boys and all that kind of Horse shit that that's been floating around out there for 20 some odd years.
0: So if you had to do over again, you would still put the giant in the NWO.
1: Yeah, I think I would have, you know, look, yeah, I would have again, context at that time under those conditions. Yeah, I would have.
0: I do want to circle back to something you said a minute ago, because I hadn't heard that. Uh, And I'm not saying it didn't happen. I, I just, maybe I missed it. You read or heard somewhere that Owen Hart was supposed to be
1: a topic in the movie, not a topic in the movie. Hold on. I'm going to pull it up because I I saw it in last week's notes and I thought it was so unbelievable. Hold on. As I'm scrolling down, 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 well, down, down, well, down let me down. tell you
0: while you're scrolling, you go to boxofawesome.com. If you're constantly on the go, grinding away at the office, hanging out with friends, and there's just not much time to think about upgrading your style or your apartment, that's why Eric and I love getting a new box of awesome from Bespoke Post every month. These guys are scouting out for quality and unique products to send in each box, and now you can experience it too at boxofawesome.com. And I just got A new box of awesome myself, they call it refresh. It's a classy dop kit. That's pretty cool, man. Um, when, when I opened it here at the house, the wife said, uh, who sent you that because it was that cool. And she thought, "Mm, you don't have the the taste to pick something out like that on your own, made me look cool, man. Box of awesome.com can do that for you too, to get started. Visit box answer a few short questions, and that'll help them get a feel for the boxes that'll go best with your style, whether you're looking for the perfect drink or a well-kept pad or just jet setting in style, bespoke post improves your life one box at a time and check this out. Each box goes for under 50 bucks, but there's more than $70 worth of stuff inside really cool unique gear waiting just for you. The first of each month you'll receive an email with all your box details and then from there you've got five days to change your colors sizes and you can even add extra goods to your box and if you're not feeling that month's box well that's no big deal just simply skip it from barrel aging kits to limited edition cigars weekender bags to classy dop kits bespoke post offers essential goods and guidance for the modern man i love mine you will too And how about this? You get 20% off your first subscription box when you go to boxofawesome.com and enter our promo code 83weeks. That's boxofawesome.com, and the promo code is 83weeks for 20% off your first box. Bespoke Post themed boxes for guys that give a damn.
1: All right. I found it. And by the way, I just ordered the Weekender bag from Bespoke Post, so I can't wait to get it.
0: Oh, you're gonna like it. My uh I've got one and my buddy Casio, when he saw mine, said, Dude, that's fucking awesome. Where'd you get it? I told him about boxofawesome.com, he's got one too. And whenever you see Casio on the road taping podcast, his podcast bag is the weekender bag from Bespoke Post. It's a cool bag. He gets compliments everywhere he goes. You're gonna love it. Check it out. Boxofawesome.com.
1: Okay, so I found my notes from last week, and I did to your point, I did misspeak. I did misspeak. But here, let me read it to you. This is from Dave Meltzer. And again, from last week's show. Now, I'm reading from your notes here. The wrestling movie, which, by the way, was called Ready to Rumble, right. is was far too long, meaning it couldn't be dropped. This was all within the context of me leaving WCW and some of the ideas that I brought to the table that presumably were dropped because now I was gone. But the movie, according to Meltzer, was far too long and will be produced next month bischoff who was to star in the movie as something of a vince mcmahon character now keep in mind i was the heel authority figure before vince mcmahon was the heel authority figure so to suggest or imply that i was trying to become a vince mcmahon version of wcw is kind of inauthentic or horseshit just from the get-go but Eric Bischoff was to star in the in the movie as something of a Vin, Vince McMahon character in a terribly scripted story based on what happened to Bret Hart. Not Owen Hart, Bret Hart. Now, while I misspoke and and said Owen Hart, the fact that it was a, according to Dave Meltzer, and in, in, in all and and again, this is something, by the way, now I'm I'm gonna try not to be too aggressive here or too much of a horse's ass <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it, honestly, if, if you're going to write something about a movie, first of all, the movie wasn't my idea as I said last week. Warner Brothers came to me. I didn't go to Warner Brothers. This wasn't you know the, the, the rumor and, innuendo, and uh, rumor in innuendo, easy for me to say. and the narrative specifically by Meltzer at the time was that I wanted to be a Hollywood guy. okay Warner Brothers came to me and said, we want to do this movie. Okay, that wasn't you know what I mean? What am I supposed to do? Say no? Right. Geez, that's a bad idea. I don't want to take that to my bosses because that would make it look like I'm actually working with this super mega entertainment powerhouse that's about to, you know, invest in us and acquire us. So I'm gonna I'm gonna camp out and say no because Dave Meltzer might not like it. But anyway, the movie was too far along and will be produced next month by Vince McMahon based on what happened to Bret Hart. Nothing is further from the truth. Nothing. And if Dave Meltzer was even pretending to be a journalist or pretending to have a modicum of credibility, it would have been very easy for him to find out what that movie script was about. He was too fucking lazy to pick up the phone and do the work. So instead, he went with the narrative that Eric Bischoff, because he wanted to be a Hollywood guy, has got at Warner Brothers to do a movie script about what happened to Bret Hart. Profoundly telling about Dave Meltzer's credibility, not only then but now. We'll just let it go at that. Here we go. I thought we'd get through a freaking episode without having to get into this shit. Well, you and said- I and I leaned into it. I did. It's my fault. It's my bad. I could have I could have leaned out of this. We could have gotten by this so easily. <laughs> but but it just still it drives me crazy how people, so many people believe the horseshit that these people write because they have their own little personal, you know, in in the, for their own insecurities, they've got their own agendas. And they, you know, they have a platform and they put this stupid shit out there. And unfortunately, people read it and they believe it.
0: Well, what people did believe is that uh, razor and diesel were coming back to the WWF on the Friday edition of Monday night raw, because they called it uh, Raw's championship Friday or championship Friday, raw, or whatever. Jr is saying that diesel and razor are coming back to the WWF. Of course he doesn't say Scott Hall or Kevin Nash, only the names diesel and razor. And he says, The breaking story we talked about earlier in the show that I really believe will be the biggest story of the year here in the World Wrestling Federation is this Big Daddy Cool Diesel and the bad guy Razor Ramon are on their way back to the World Wrestling Federation. I have that on good authority from some very reliable sources. And Kevin Kelly would respond, Unbelievable news, JR. What a huge story that would be. JR reiterates, My sources tell me, and they've been very reliable sources. I've had them for years. That this in fact is the big daddy, cool and razor bad guy, razor Ramon. And they're on their way back to the world wrestling federation.
1: That is awesome. I so, mean, I, that is so awesome. I just love it.
0: Well, behind the scenes, of course, you know, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash of particularly Kevin Nash have doubled down on the idea that when you heard this, you panicked a little thinking that, oh no, we never officially signed these guys to contracts. We just had deal memos. Uh, maybe we need, to uh, take them contracts and put a little more cheese on their burger for them.
1: Uh, look, both Scott and Kevin are good friends of mine and, and, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember what event it was, but about six months ago, we were together. The three of us, you were at uh, the, on- uh, for the love of wrestling over in the UK. No, it was, no, it was here. It was a domestic one here, here in the States. It doesn't matter where it was, but we, we did a panel together And there was probably 150, 100 people in the audience, I guess, give or take. And, you know, you get quite when you're sitting there, all three of us are sitting there and you get these questions about things that have been said over the over the years. And sometimes we contradict each other. Kevin remembers things one way. I remember them differently. Scott Hall remembers things one way. I remember them differently. It happens, you know, to this day, some of my best friends have recollections of things that I don't think ever happened. And I'm sure that I have recollections of things that are substantially different than than some of my friends. But nonetheless, we get out when we're in a live situation or quote unquote shoot interview. And we try to be as entertaining and as interesting and recall things the way we do uh, or, or or the way we think we recall them. And there's always a conflict. I will tell you that I did not panic. They were under contract. There were no deal memos. And by the way, a deal memo is a binding Is a binding. uh, uh, There are two forms of deal memos: one binding and non-binding. Ours were binding deal memos, meaning you you agree to all of the fundamental terms of an agreement. You sign it, anticipating a long form to come at a later date. Long forms often take a long time to draft, but if you have all of the principal uh, elements of a deal agreed upon and it's a binding a uh, letter of intent or a binding deal memo, then it's as legal as any contract. It would prevent anybody from leaving anywhere so, so for whatever reason they may have suggested either to either because it's just the way they remembered it or possibly to be more interesting in a, in an interview for them to suggest that I was in a panic would be incorrect. I, I can tell you if the, the, I can tell you if I was in a panic or not, and I was not in a panic, you know, they weren't living inside of my head. Uh, any more than they could tell you back in, on this date in 1996, whether I was hungry for pizza or pineapple. So, you know, to suggest that I was in a panic because these guys weren't locked up contractually in my opinion, from my perspective is factually incorrect.
0: Well, here's something that is factually correct. Mean Gene says his goodbyes and, uh, he's saying goodbye To, uh, a lot of the company early in this week on the way to fall brawl. And on Thursday morning, all WCW employees in the office get a memo saying that Oakland is no longer with the company. And he does appear on uh, the pre-show and the countdown package for the pay-per-view. But by that point, uh, he's no longer with the company. Meltzer would say between Oakland's base contract and his cut of the 900 line, it was believed that he was earning somewhere in the neighborhood of 420 grand a year and was looking for a raise depending on which story you choose to believe Oakland, either a few weeks ago or over the past few days, spoke with Vince McMahon about coming back, but not a lot of interest was shown on that side. Oakland had been playing the going to Titan card in negotiations with WCW. And since the Titan card has been played, Oakland is expected to come back to the negotiating table with WCW. And most feel there's a good chance he'll end up returning, uh, JJ Dillon, who's one of the key talent liaisons and bookers in the world wrestling Federation resigned on Thursday afternoon, the same day, this memo comes out about, um, mean gene no longer being with the company. And we've talked a little bit about both of these things, but I do find it interesting that they sort of both happen on the same day in other parts of the country, what do you remember about mean gene? You know, leaving obviously is going to come right back. Not too terribly long after. Does Meltzer have the assessment correct that he was playing the "I'm I'm flirting with Titan and I need more money" and you called his bluff, and then there was no deal there?
1: Yes, I think for the most part he he does. I, I will say I wasn't handling Gene's negotiation, uh, despite again the perception. Uh, it's not even rumor and innuendo, but the perception that every deal that came uh, that was signed by WCW was a was a deal that I negotiated personally is not true. Um, I I may have chimed in on certain elements of a deal if it if it was something unusual um, were to come up, but for the most part, deals were negotiated by Turner Legal. It had nothing to do with me. Now, when it came to you know the financial side of it, you know, how it affected my budget and so forth. Of course, I had input on that. Um, but in terms of the actual negotiation and the, you know, day-to-day back and forth and dealing with agents and attorneys, um, uh, uh, th- there were a couple instances where I was involved and sometimes directly. But for the most part, uh, I was tangential to the process. And in Jean's case, I really wasn't part of that process. But I think the, you know, I think that the, 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 the way Dave described it is, probably generally pretty accurate.
0: I know there's a lot of meat on the bone about JJ Dillon and and we'll talk more about that a little later, but did you know, um, how quickly after he resigns with Vince, did you know that he was available and or interested before same day soon after, how did you learn about it? and, and, And what were you told?
1: Um, you know, I didn't know who JJ Dillon was and that's no disrespect to JJ. I'm not trying to be a smart ass or, 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 you know, say anything to risk of it anyway. It's not my intent. Um, but I just didn't know who he was. Uh, and Kevin Nash came to me probably the day he was let go or shortly thereafter. Kevin Nash came to me because we did need somebody in talent relations. Talent relations was a weak spot in, in on our management team. You know, Terry Taylor, (laughs) enough said. That was our kind of talent relations guy. Um, We knew that that was a weak spot. It's impossible, in my opinion, it was impossible for me to find somebody, a former talent, a former wrestler, that you could take out of that wrestling category and now groom them to be management because most, Most talents have a very difficult time and they eventually can get there, but most of them have a difficult time with that transition from being one of the guys in the locker room to now being management. It's a very uncomfortable spot to be in. We've talked about that before, even even, in, even as a, a writer or as they used to call them, bookers. You know, Ric Flair was put in an impossible position because he had so much legacy, you know, as one of, quote, unquote, the boys, uh, then to take control over people's lives creatively put him in a horrible spot that he just didn't function well under. Well, the same thing is true, I think, when it comes to talent relations. You know, you, it's really difficult to go from being one of the, quote, unquote, boys to being the boss and For that reason, when Kevin Nash came to me and said, Hey, you know, JJ Dillon has been doing this role in WWF and he's good at it and the guys have respect for him and blah 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 and he's not one of the boys or at least he hadn't been in a long time, you know, and you know, again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into all of the details here, but there was two reasons that I brought him in. One, because I needed somebody to fill that role, and two, because I really felt like at that time of his life, J.J. needed a great opportunity. And because he was in the business, and I know how hard it is for people. First of all, it's hard in, in this industry, it's hard to find people. I'll say in, in 1996, 1997, 1998, the, the way the wrestling industry was managed and the way it operated back then it it was hard to take somebody from the outside of the industry, unless it was legal or finance or, you know, some other aspect of the business that is more traditional across other businesses. But when it came down to the nuts and bolts and the inner workings of the professional wrestling industry, it, it was hard to find people that could fill certain roles and talent relations is one of them. So, I needed somebody that could fill that role. JJ had previously done that role in WWF. Kevin Nash gave me uh, an endorsement. And again, after talking to JJ and even Kevin was the one that kind of tipped me off as to what JJ's you know, personal situation was like, I thought, you know, what the hell it, it, we kind of check all the boxes. It's kind of the right thing to do from my perspective at the time, it was the right thing to do generally. And, you know, there's a couple other reasons I need to check these boxes and he seemed to be the guy to fit the bill. So yeah, I I hired him shortly after he left. I don't know if it was a day or two or three, but it was pretty soon after he left WWF.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the angle that really sold this pay-per-view. Uh, the Monday prior is a big show. It's the September 9th nitro, the go home nitro before this pay-per-view. And there's a limo outside. It's raining million dollar man's out there with his umbrella and, uh, Lex Luger is wanting to know who's in this limo because we assume it's uh, it's the NWO. And we hear Sting's voice coming from a limo. DBIAC gets out Luger's there. And we hear Sting say something like, I'm tired of this stuff. This DTA stuff. Don't trust anybody. He's got to go. You know why? You better learn to trust somebody right now. You've got no way out. It's either you trust him or you don't look at me in the eye. You know, I look at you guys and you know, you can trust him. And then of course sting attacks Lex Luger. And this is a really, really cool angle. I remember watching this live when it happened, thinking what the hell am I seeing Hulk Hogan (laughs) and sting are bad guys now. I got to buy this damn pay-per-view now, of course the war games is supposed to be the original three members of the NWO Hulk Hogan, Scott hall, Kevin Nash, and a fourth man against what we believe to be not just the four horsemen, which maybe was the original idea, but now it's Rick and Arne, the two sort of, uh, stalwarts of the horsemen and Sting and Lex Luger, the, the franchise baby faces of the organization. And of course. In reality, this isn't Steve Borden. It's Jeff farmer who's previously wrestled in WCW as Cobra and he's dressed up like sting and this entire week, a lot of fans, myself included thought, holy shit, sting's finally a bad guy. I can't believe this is real. How did the, uh, who first realized, Hey, Jeff farmer under the paint with the, with the right tights and boots and jacket. He could pass for sting. Whose idea is that? Who sees that in Jeff Farmer?
1: God, I knew you were going to ask me that question. I've been trying to find Jeff Farmer. I I was with Jeff. We had uh, lunch together in Tokyo, uh, right in a restaurant right up right next to the Tokyo dome, uh, back in February. And we, you know, reminisced. And, and I wish I would have asked him, you know, where that idea really originated. Because as we've said here before, most ideas are a collaboration, right? You know, somebody says, Hey, what if we do this in red? what if we do it in blue? Well, let's do it in red and blue. Hey, purple's great. You know? Um, but this is such a important pivot point in, in this story, you know, the fake sting that What I'm going to do, I promise you, by next week, I'm going to have the answer. In fact, I may even petition. I know we don't do interviews on this show. I may even petition that we ask Jeff Farmer to join us for just a few moments and describe how that all went down. Because I I always want to – it wasn't my idea. Let me make that clear. It would be really easy for me to say, oh, I did that. It wasn't my idea. Somebody came to us – when I say us, I mean the creative team – and said, hey, this might work. Now, it could have been Terry Taylor, could have been Kevin Sullivan, could have been Jeff Farmer himself. I don't know. But rather than saying, I don't know, I want to get to the bottom of it. And if it's possible to have Jeff, in his own words, enlighten us as to how that really happened. Because so often, like we talked about before, you know, people remember things different ways. And some of it is just because time has passed. You know, and you tell the same story over and over and over again, or you give the same answer over and over and over again, and you tend to try to find ways to make it a little more interesting than the way you told the last time. And sometimes that kind of uh, forces you or, or cr- creates a situation where you're kind of veering off the factual path a little bit. And I don't want to do that with this. So I'm going to say for the record, I don't know. It wasn't my idea, but we will get to the bottom of it. And hopefully next week we'll talk about it.
0: Really, really great stuff. Go out of your way to watch this. This build is just phenomenal. Um, and you're putting over, you know, that this is the most disappointing thing you've seen and you know, your six years with WCW. You're doing a great job selling it here on commentary, as everybody is. And it sold me on the pay-per-view. This was my first pay-per-view purchased back as a wrestling fan. I, I didn't I didn't decide to pick up SummerSlam or, or Hog Wild. Uh, or in your house mind games for the competition here in September, but I did not miss this one, man. And uh, it was this angle that helped sell it. I am curious though, you know, what would, were there other ideas for the, the sort of fake sting concept before, or is this really the first time you had heard it? Because it does feel like something that, you know, with the black scorpion being attempted before you were really there, maybe it could have been a retread, but it could have also been. You know, a Bizarro Sting type thing that we had seen before with the Undertaker and the Underfaker and that type of thing.
1: It was the first time I had heard it. Now I was aware of the Black Scorpion because it was kind of a a tongue-in-cheek, you know, <laughs> joke <laughs> that that I had heard. It, it happened before I got to WCW originally, but nonetheless, the the legend of the Black Scorpion lived on um, as a punchline. So. I I I was aware of it as a result of that, but the idea, you know, the way it was presented again, I can't wait to find out exactly where it started, but the way it was presented, uh, to me felt fresh and it was a good idea. I mean, we knew the reason we did it is because we had looked at Jeff in, in his fake sting gear. We knew that we could, we could fool the audience, you know, by that time Sting's hair had grown dark, you know, he, he wasn't bleaching it blonde anymore. You know, physically, they were very, very close. And because of the face paint, it wasn't that difficult to, you know, to pull this off. And when we saw Jeff Farmer in his fake sting gear, it was like, holy shit, we can make this work. And even even going back and watching this for the first time. You know, because it was, you know, part of the, the cold open of the pay per view. I went, what the hell? <laughs> Probably much like you did. Because again, my mind wasn't thinking, where are we at? What's the storyline? I, you know, didn't, I didn't immediately call back to where we were at Fall Brawl of '96. So when I saw that in the cold open, I'm thinking, what in the hell were we doing? Where, and then after, you know, a few seconds, it all kind of fell into place and made sense. But the, if you put Jeff Farmer in his Sting gear and Sting in his Sting gear side by side, um, from 10 feet away, it was, you would, you'd be hard pressed to pick them out unless you knew them both really, really well. And with, you know, camera work and lighting and so forth, we knew we could pull it off. So it, it was, yes, I knew about the under faker and I knew about the black scorpion. I knew about all that stuff, but to me, they weren't, there was no risk of falling into either of those categories.
0: It's amazing to me too, that when you really think about it, you know, the WWF is going to get crapped on so hard for this whole fake razor, fake, uh, diesel thing. But they don't even sort of tease that until Friday of that week. But that Monday you're presenting your own fake sting right away. So you're beating them to the punch and you're doing it much more effectively because nobody hated this. This was very, very well done. And then we should mention that, um, the wrestling observer reader poll only gave the the readers only gave this a 45% thumbs up for this fall brawl, which really shocked me because. I don't know. Maybe I'm just nostalgic about this show because it was my first show back. but it gets 35% thumbs down. I I totally disagree with the readers of the observer on this one. I love this show just because of this particular storyline. Let's get into the show. First match on the card, diamond Dallas page, Chavo Guerrero, Jr. Uh, it feels like diamond Dallas page opened every pay-per-view for about 32 years with WCW, uh, 13 minutes. And then of course, you know, what's going to happen. Diamond cutter. Uh, in just a few months, he's going to have an opportunity to, uh, land a diamond cutter on the NWO and he's a made man in January of 97, but we're still working to get there in September of 1996. Meltzer liked it though. Gave it three and a half stars. And he says that page was really impressive in carrying Guerrero, who is still very green, although he has potential. He called it shockingly good, but maybe it went a few minutes too long. What'd you think?
1: Uh, for the most part, I think most matches go a little too long, but I think this one did. I think, you know, as I was watching the match this morning, uh, again, you know, I watched Paige's entrance and Uh, again, as you pointed out, this is before the kind of remake. Uh, it was hard for me to watch that entrance, you know, that old DDP character kind of got on my nerves, but once the bell rang, you know, the work in the ring was really pretty good. A little sloppy. You know, there was a couple times throughout the match that things were a little bit off. Uh, I think part of that was still as as good as DDP was at this point, and as much as he had vastly improved at this point, people need to remember he was still pretty new at this. He may have been a little older than most people, but in terms of his time in the ring and training, you know, depending on who you talk to, I would say he was still pretty green himself. But he did a very very good job. And I thought the same for Chavo. I mean, Chavo, you know, we we got to look at, you know, one of the reasons why Chavo went on to be a, a great performer. He, he did a lot of exciting things. He worked well with Page. Some of his aerial stuff was a little less less than crisp, but there was a lot of it that was. So I, I thought overall it was, I don't know if I thought as highly of it as, as Dave Meltzer did, but I thought it was a pretty solid match.
0: Yeah. I don't know that, um, we're all the way there's parts of this show that feel like it's very much WCW and evolution. Like it's, it's not peak WCW, but it's real close, but you can still feel some things that are still feel like they're hanging on to like 94, 95, maybe early 96 diamond Dallas page here. For instance, does not have near the gimmicks that he did just a year prior A year prior, he was like smoking a cigar and had a toothpick in his mouth and chewing gum and sunglasses and rings on every finger and tape, uh, and self high-fiving and banging. And (laughs) I mean, just a walking souvenir stand. Um, but here he's, he's on his way. The next match though does feel a little out of place It's ice train and Scott Norton, they were a tag team called fire and ice for about that long. And now they're breaking up and we're going to put these two behemoths in a submission match, because when I think of ice train, I think of a fucking submission match, uh, star in a quarter, uh, Teddy long looks like he's been sucking on an air hose as Tony Schiavone would say. I didn't even recognize him here. what do you think of the match? And, uh, will you offer refunds to anyone who purchased this all this time later? Cause I feel like you owe me at least $5 for having to watch this one.
1: That's such a bad thing to say. That's so mean. That's so mean and bitter. Look, they're two big guys. Uh, we've talked before about a wrestling buffet. Some people still love those larger than life, you know. I don't want to say cartoonish, but you know, animated type characters. And um, come on, think, man, this is
0: the worst match on the show.
1: Why are you? No, I no, no, no. I'm not going to. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that it wasn't the worst match on the show. <laughs> it wasn't a great match. But some people like watching watching big powerful i mean it, it's a it's aspirational you know you 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 live through characters you know some people do and some people wish you know you're sitting at home you weigh 120 pounds with rocks in your sockets or rocks in your pockets and rocks in your sockets that sounds horrible but with rocks in your pockets, you're a 120-pounder, and you wish you were a 285-pound guy with you know 24-inch arms. And that's what these two guys represented. Was it a great match for people that love great matches? Absolutely not. Arguably, it was may have been the worst match on the card for many people. But for some people who like watching these big, powerful, larger-than-life character, characters beat the hell out of each other, perhaps they enjoyed it. Not everybody that goes to the buffet likes anchovies, but for those who do, they do. So this is my anchovy batch. Let's move on.
0: (laughs) I love that. You're trying to sell it and just hurry it along. Uh, the, the wrestling observer readers agreed with me worst match on the show. And you know, I guess you, you're maybe onto something with the buffet And, and maybe it's time that we talk about the buffet You're you're offering your dog because you were serving up some dog food here with this offering. Have you ever wondered why every dog food? No matter how pretty the bag is or the brand or the price, it's some sort of like dry, smelly, burnt brown pellet. Why don't we feed this stuff to our beloved pets for every meal of their life? Well, now we don't have to, thanks to the farmer's dog. The farmer's dog makes it easy to feed your dog real fresh food, actual food that you can see, smell. Well, and if you really want to, you can taste it too. They delivered it right to my house exactly when I needed it. And I just reach right into the fridge, open and pour there's real USDA fresh veggies and I love my dog's Turkey recipe with carrots and spinach. There's no wondering what's in my dog's food because I can actually see the ingredients every time. And the farmer's dog worked with top vets to make sure their food has a complete and balanced diet for your dog. So, you know, they're getting the nutrition they need to thrive. It's been pre-portioned for them. So you don't have to worry about over or underfeeding and a fresh food diet is linked to a wealth of health benefits, Uh, from a smoother coat and regulated weight to well, better poops and fresher breath, which was definitely an issue in my house. We had some stinky breath and plans now are starting at just three bucks a day, which is less than your morning coffee. These days, I'm able to make it work for my family and. Of course, I've got four-legged family members. I have peace of mind knowing that I've made a long-term investment in my dog's health. This is something that you and I believe in a great deal. Right, Eric?
1: I'm passionate about this one. Um, And I I love all of our sponsors. And I I have to say, we've got great sponsors. um, But this one's near and dear to my heart. Now, those of you who follow me on Twitter, at eBishoff know that my dog, Nikki. I should say our dog, Nikki, my Mrs. B and and myself, uh, is as much a part of our family as any other family member. I mean, we love our dog and I spend as much time with my dog as I possibly can and her health is really critically important to me. And I've spent the last four years doing a tremendous amount of research on dog food because so often, you know, if you just go buy commercial food in the store, you really don't know what's in it. There's a lot of filler. There's a lot of horrible stuff in most dog foods or many dog foods, I should say. And even the super high quality ones, now up until I, I, I started getting my dog's food from farmer's dog, I, I'm not gonna name the name brand because it's, it's a good quality brand. And I was paying a lot of money for it it was a dry dog food. And I had done a lot of research. I talked to breeders, I talked to vets, and you know, I really did my homework to find the very best food I could buy my dog. And even that dog food, because it was a dry dog food, in order for it to be dry, it has to be cooked. And unfortunately, when you cook dog food to, to create a dry product, the heat in the cooking process destroys or eliminates a lot of the nutrients that went into the formula. So you put together a great formula to create this really high quality, very expensive dry dog food. Then you have to heat it up in the manufacturing process in order to put it in the bag and sell it. And at that final stage, as you you cook it to put it in the bag, you're killing off almost all of the nutrients or many of the nutrients at least. So on paper, it looks like a great product. In reality, by the time it gets into your dog's bowl, not so much. So as Farmer's Dog, you know, signed on to become a sponsor, they sent us, you know, the first shipment and said, here, try it out, make sure you like it. And I did the research on Farmer's Dog and their ingredients and was really, really comfortable with it. And obviously it's shipped fresh, it's frozen, but it gets to your home frozen, still completely 100% filled with the nutrients that it was packaged in. And, you you know, we thawed out the refrigerator and we feed it to our dog fresh. And our dog absolutely loves it. Now we didn't have a breath issue, but I will tell you not to get you know super graphic here. It's not what people are interested in, but you know cleaning up after our dog has become a lot easier. <laughs> without going into graphic detail, um, her metabolism seems to be much more regulated. Inconsistent, uh, and, and she's just a happier dog. So I'm I'm a firm believer in this product. I'm a firm believer in all of our sponsors' products because you and I get to test them, and we don't promote things that we don't like or we don't believe in. But this is one that's real high up on my list.
0: I have a friend who has uh, tried the this this food, and his dog had allergies, and so he just thought that his dog had allergies. He had like, these splotches all over, and you could you could see like discoloration on the skin. And within like six weeks of using this new food, it's completely gone. I, I'm not saying that's going to be the results for you. I'm just saying this is good stuff. It's really helping our dogs. You should check it out. If you love your dogs, you're going to love the farmer's dog because the farmer's dog is a smarter, healthier pet food, and they make it as simple as possible to give your dog a better diet. Start your trial today. Go to the farmers, slash 83 weeks, and you'll get 50% off and get free shipping. I can't believe that's real, guys. Thefarmersdog.com/slash/83weeks, fifty percent off your trial plus free shipping. Why wouldn't you do it? Thefarmersdog.com/slash/83weeks. All right, let's get to our next match, and this was an interesting one. Uh, Juventud Guerreras here. One of my guilty pleasures of WCW. I absolutely love his work, uh, and he's going to be challenging Conan for the Mexican Heavyweight Title. Now, in reality, it's the AAA title. But you guys are referring to it as the mexican heavyweight title i really like this match conan and uh and hooventude but i love these performers and man there's one power bomb in here that's just devastating it's a cool contrast of, of conan as a as more of a power move guy and and hooventude really showcasing all of his incredible high spots really really good stuff i dug it what'd you think
1: I did too. And I think the bump you're talking about, if you're going to watch this on the WWE network, I picked it up at about 43 minutes and 17 seconds, uh, ran through to 43 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, no, let me take that back. That bump occurred in about 50 minutes is, is when it took place. I loved it. I thought it was a great match. Uh, the only thing, you know, again, as I said at the beginning of the show, there's some things I wish I could go back and do over. Um, having Conan in the dungeon of doom and having Jimmy Hart out there in his fluorescent Hulk Hogan gimmick with the megaphone is about as out of place as anything I can imagine in my life. Uh, I wish I could pull that back. I wouldn't have changed anything about the match. I just wouldn't have had Jimmy Hart out there dancing around like a, you know, like he just jumped out of a clown car. Um. That's the only thing that kind of rubbed me wrong. It was just nothing against Jimmy. Nothing against what, you know, some of the great things that he's done in the past. But, again, really, really bad casting here. Didn't make any sense. You know, Conan and the Dungeon of Doom made absolutely no sense. The Dungeon of Doom were all cartoon characters. And if you look at Conan and the way he's being presented here, he was a street guy. He's an OG, as he referred to himself. It's just, you know, just so bad. But aside from that, the match itself phenomenal i loved it there's also a spot in here in this match where conan and hoovey make great use of the two rings i don't remember what the move sequence oh, yeah, was absolutely. but absolutely
0: he's he's jumping he, he does like a springboard from the outside to that rope then over to the other corner and then i mean so it's like from rope to rope to rope hoovey's just moving around in a, and it's funny because i watched it this week i, I had i love this paper so much i invited some of my friends from out of town to come watch it with me and we made a night of it and it was fun and One of my buddies remarked, why did Conan just stand there? And I said, fuck, nobody could predict what Hoovy was going to do. I didn't know. He's, he's bouncing around. You're just looking at him like,
1: what the fuck is he?
0: Where's he going? And then wham, double drop kick. Great stuff.
1: It was really fun to watch. It just made me, I wish I would have appreciated it more in the moment. Sometimes you don't appreciate things until after it happens. And in this case, I don't think I always enjoyed Hoovy and his matches. Uh, Maybe because, you know, (laughs) The issues and the challenges that, that came along with him personally kind of affected the way I looked at his performances. But, you know, as I look back now, you know, 20 some odd years later, what a great match this was. Hoovy was a great performer. I think this was a, an excellent matchup. Two different, you know, contrasting styles, but both out of the Lucha, you know, uh, genre, if you will, or category. I loved it. I loved everything about it except for, <laughs> except for the Dungeon of Doom part
0: really really good stuff go out of your way to watch this one and we should mention we're on a roll here this first match with uh, DDP and Chavo got three and a half stars ice training Scott Norton not as good star and a quarter but this one gets three and three quarter stars and the hits keep coming man I can't believe this is real but Chris Jericho fresh off of his nitro debut is about to make his WCW pay-per-view debut and he's taking on Chris Benoit they go 14 minutes and 36 seconds. Unbelievably great match. Four stars. Uh early Jericho, early Benoit. But man, everything, and I know this is people get weird about talking about Benoit matches, but he had such snap on everything that he did. Uh, everything just looked believable and impactful and and full bore, man. Really, really fun to watch. I dug this one. What'd you think?
1: Same. I mean, I just uh, oh. Wow. I mean, I'm a Chris Jericho fan. I've, I've always loved his work. You know, we've had our ups and downs over the years personally, but that goes with the territory. Good friends with him now and all that. But, you know, I love going back and watching early Chris Jericho. I love his current stuff. You know, the, the guy has reinvented himself, you know, over and over and over again, and every time he does, he seems to up, up his game to a new level and a different character, and I think that's an amazing testament to who Chris Jericho is. But I will go back, having said all that, and putting him over as much as i possibly can um i'll go back and say to me this is this is chris jericho this is a chris jericho that as a character i fell in love with as a talent that i went holy shit this is the next evolution and went on to be the next evolution or one of but this match is so good and because of both guys you know because of chris certainly because of chris and because of chris uh chris Benoit. I mean, they were both – has there ever been anyone since Chris Benoit, as awkward as it is to put him over and let's forget about – for the moment, not forget about, let's set aside for for the purpose of the di- of this discussion the horrific way his life and his fam- family's life ended, to set that off to the side for a moment and analyze the work in the ring. Has there been anybody since Chris Benoit that has been able to consistently deliver – the kind of crispness and believability, and ring work that Benoit brought to the table, not occasionally, not every now and then, every time, a, every time, with no matter who he's wrestling, no matter who it was, you put him in there with Hulk Hogan, you put him in there with Kevin Nash, you put him in there with Rey Mysterio, you put him in there with Tugboat, whatever. It's an example, not a not an actual match. You could put him in a in a match with anybody. And he would deliver, at least on his end, a performance that was so crisp and so believable that it almost didn't matter who he was working with. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, if if you can watch uh, Benoit matches, Melzer would write this from a technical wrestling standpoint. This was the best match on the card, and as good a match as you'll see anywhere. So, really, really high marks. And that continues again. I can't believe this streak continues. Rey Mysterio. Is going to retain his cruiserweight title in 15 minutes and 47 seconds over Super Callow, who I believe debuted in like the prior 30 or 45 days, for guys on Saturday night, and now he's got a title shot here. And it's not a good match; it's another great match, four stars. And it does feel a little weird that Super Callow is getting a title shot, but uh, I'm glad he did because the result is badass and. I don't know that we've spent a lot of time talking about super Calo, but he really showed what he was capable of here. And this young 1996 Rey Mysterio is still, even now, unlike anything, anybody's seen before, just another level, the finish and the hurricane Rana into the pinning combination. Outstanding, really, really good showing. Uh, I dug this one. What say you?
1: Yeah, I dug it as well. And one of the reasons I liked it as much as I did is it wasn't the Lucha, uh, it was it, the psychology and the ring action was more grounded, I think. Uh, there was a lot of lucha stuff in there. There were a lot of great high spots in there. There were a lot of great Rey Mysterio moments in this match and, and, and Callow moments, but it was very well balanced with some great kind of grounded ring work as well. And psychology oftentimes when you get two great Lucha stars, they would bring, you know, the most aerial aspects of, of their art form to, to their match. And it's spectacular to watch, but sometimes the story and the psychology got kind of, marginalized in, in the, in the process, this match had great psychology and I, I felt a great balance between the kind of high flying aerial, you know, Lucha style you know, presentation along with just good grounded pound storytelling. So I, I loved it for that reason.
0: Go out of your way to watch it, man. Just really, really good stuff. Mysterio in his prime is just hard to beat. And unbelievably the hits keep coming. We're on quite a streak here on the undercard. The Harlem heat retain their tag titles against the nasty boys in 15 minutes and 31 seconds. And I know what you're thinking. Okay. Guys, Mysterio Benoit Jericho, Hoventude, Conan. All right. I'm getting that this is a good wrestling show, but you're going to put over Harlem heat and the nasty boys. Yes, we are. Even Meltzer did. He said after the previous two matches, this didn't figure to hold up, but it was a surprise and he would even say a surprisingly good match ending when Sherry broke a cane over Knob's head and Booker T pinned him. This is uh, the Sherry of old. She's got a lot of heat going in this match. It's a good brawl, and it is definitely a contrast. You know, you had some flipping and flying in the last match. This is just ass kicking three and a half stars worth. There is a fun moment on commentary, though. Remember, the Harlem Heat are the champs, and Bobby Heenan says something like, it does no good for heat to try to win by count out. You can't win the, the titles on a count out, but they're already the champs, uh, three and a half stars. What'd you think?
1: I thought it was a great match. A lot of great moving pieces in this, um, Sherry Martel. you know, as I've said, you know, in recent weeks, I, I think is probably one of the more underrated performers, uh, or underappreciated performers over the last 20 or 30 years. She was a great character. She could do it all. She was great on the mic. She could get heat in the ring, she could be sultry, she could be sexy, she could be provocative, she could be an ass kicker, she could do it all, she had a great range, and I think that's one of the things that so often talent, you know, doesn't pay enough attention to, you know, you you can, you, you may be great at a certain type of character, you know, for a year or two, but you gotta have range, if you're gonna have longevity, you've gotta be able to do it all. And you have to be able to tell different kind of stories with your character or be able to be inserted into different types of stories because you have the ability to adapt to your situations. And I think Sherry, because she had so much range and because she was so capable in so many different ways. And this, you know, I, I can't say this was Sherry Martell at her peak because I didn't work with Sherry Martell in WWF. And I'll be honest, I didn't watch her a lot in WWF, uh, early WWF. But I can't say in terms of our relationship with Sherry, this might have been Sherry at her peak. She was she was awesome. And I think that's one of, not the only, one of the reasons this match was as well-received as it was. Because you had some great moving pieces. You had Sherry with, with all of the great things she just brought, as we just described, that she brought to the table. You had Harlem Heat was in there working their asses off and they were in there with uh, the nasty boys and everybody's got opinions about the nasty boys because they were all friends and they were kind of one dimensional themselves. They weren't able to have a whole lot of you know, different types of matches. They weren't technicians by any stretch of the imagination, but in a match like this, they were two of the toughest bastards you could ever put in a ring. You know, Brian knobs could take some abuse. Jerry Sags is one tough SOB and in a match, like this i don't think you could have cast it any better and again with sherry out there and and the story that they were telling I I, I I like so many you know when i saw this oh i saw this oh we're gonna have to cover this match oh my god it's gonna be painful conrad's gonna make fun of me he's gonna beat my ass for putting this match on the pay-per-view and then i watched it and went okay bring it on big man
0: yeah it was I'm good ready. stuff. <laughs> really really good stuff man I- uh, we've talked about it before, but the Nasty Boys have always been a bit of a guilty pleasure for me. I think they get a bad rap. Uh, when it comes to a brawling ass kicking match, they're about as good as it gets. And uh, I, like a lot of other folks, prefer their heel stuff over their baby face stuff. But we do need to, I guess we should probably mention right now, if maybe you haven't seen, Brian Knobbs is going through a tough time right now. Looks like he needs a full knee replacement. And uh, he set up a GoFundMe. And they're more than halfway there, but every little bit helps. So. If you're a fan of the Nasty Boys back in the day, check it out. It's on GoFundMe, and uh, Brian could use a little hot tag action right now. Uh, our main event is coming up, but first we've got the Giant and Randy Savage. And we mentioned uh, a little while earlier that uh, the Giant was on the WCW side of things. Of course, he just dropped the world title to Hulk Hogan a month prior at hog Wild, but now he's joined the NWO by turning his back on Randy Savage. They're going to go seven minutes and forty-seven seconds. Uh, the giant gets the win here. Meltzer would say the match had a lot of heat and was well put together. Uh, but the finish was lame. Uh, Savage has body slammed. The giant gives him the elbow off the top. And at this point, Hulk Hogan comes out, chases Savage, chases him to the back where then he's ambushed by chair shots and Nash and Hogan are, uh, going to throw him into the ring, pin him rough course. Magically referee, Nick Patrick misses all of this arguing with the giant. He gives it a star and a half, but. I understand that Meltzer didn't like the finish because it wasn't a traditional match, but it is heavy on story. It's heavy on heat. It's probably exactly what you were looking for at the time.
1: Well, because we were going with Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan at Halloween Havoc, um, in two months. So it was a story based match. It wasn't designed to, to provide a fulfilling finish and conclusion, uh, as most, most, you know, matches on a pay-per-view should do this, this was, I guess, might want to call it a transitional kind of story match. It was what it was and watching it, you know, this kind of the, the finish did, I don't mind technically if you would, if I were to read the finish on a format, it might not bother me too much. Probably would today just because it's so overdone. But even at that time, if I would have read that finish on paper, I would have went, okay, I would have taken note of it, but I probably would have let it slide. But in the execution of it, you know, the way Hulk you know was walking backwards and kept looking back over his shoulder. I mean, it, 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 if you're going to go with that finish, I think it could have been executed in a much, much better way. So you could have gotten to the same point, but executed in a way that would have been less obvious, and less of a letdown, so that. It may have gotten a better response from the audience.
0: Good stuff, man. I, um, it's hard for me to watch a, a Randy Savage match and not take notice of his hair though. And of course, when I think about hair and wrestling, I think about you because have you recently reminded us not only do you have perfect hair, uh, but you're too perfect to be real, right?
1: Well, you know, I don't like to put myself over too much. You know, occasionally I will when I feel like I deserve it because <laughs> no one else will but my wife and my dog. But um, I do have perfect hair. That, I mean, it's not not even something that anybody can argue about. Um, even Charles Robinson, you know, WWE referee who who has probably the second best head of hair I would agree. In, sport, in sports entertainment. Even Charles Robinson you know, bows down, you know, to my hair. So it it is true. Uh, You know, it has nothing to do with me. I don't work at it. I was just born this way. Genetics. My mom and dad did it. I had nothing to do with it, but I'm the beneficiary of it. Yes, I do have perfect hair. Yeah.
0: I, uh, I know that what you're most excited (laughs) about now is to share how perfect your hair is when it comes to
1: your neck hair. Because, oh my God. Well, listen, listen, it's, it's not so a, crass. It's so crass.
0: Well, it's not a secret that you're using the new lawnmower 2.0 because you don't want to snag your nuts. And you know, you won't because of their proprietary skin safe technology. And now your nuts are as smooth as a baby's bottom. And manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. And, uh, really it's probably time that you use a little logic here. You shouldn't use the same trimmer on your face that you're using on your ball sack. That's just nasty. Manscaped also has the crop preserver. And Eric, you were telling me off air how much you love the brand new anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You're already putting deodorant on your armpits. So why aren't you putting deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? I know Mrs. B's loving it. Get 20% off plus free shipping when you use our promo code 83weeks at manscapednot.com. You're going to have the opportunity to use the right tools for the job every time and your balls will thank you get 20% off and free shipping. When you use that promo code 83 weeks at manscape.com that's 20% off with free shipping at manscape.com and the promo code is 83 weeks. So Eric, um, you know, you used to do like almost like a, a penthouse forum, a uh, letter. What? Sp- what are you no, no. Talking well, about? you would, you would. Every week, you would break down your sexy time with Mrs. B. I gotta think that's enhanced now that she has a better view of what's going on down there.
1: Wow, Conrad, you 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 <laughs> take you you take these reads to a whole different level. Um, Eric, let's, Eric, let's just Eric, say I'm gonna I'm gonna be very I'm I'm gonna be very sophisticated in how I approach this read. Okay, <laughs> I'm not gonna get into the. Graphic details of my dig sex life. Hair, dick, hair, dick, hair, dick, <laughs> hair. That's what we want to know. I man. will say, I will say that as as a more enlightened man in 2019, I think hygiene sure. is critically important. I think maintaining your look in and out of the bedroom is critically important. And I think a product like Manscaped is just absolutely perfect product for today's man. Let us, we'll just let it go at that. We don't need, we don't need to get into the graphic details. My God is nothing sacred anymore.
0: No, it's not. I mean, here's the deal. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I, I need to know, are, are you like, since you've got the tools now, did you like fashion the NWO logo over your sack? because you know, y'all used to like spray painting on dude's backs. And to me, you could like really put on a real presentation, you know, for life with the
1: old NWO and the dick hair. You didn't do that yet. No, that's not my thing. But can you imagine had this product been available when Marcus Bagwell was in the NWL?
0: Oh, or how about Macho Man? That's a story for a live show. Well, that's
1: a, that's a, that's a, that's another story for a live show, but absolutely. Macho Man, I could say this with all due respect to the Macho Man. May he rest in peace, brother. Don't be mad for me saying this. He would have loved this product.
0: Well, of course he would. Uh, support for 83 weeks, of course, comes from Manscaped. They're number one in men's below the belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Get 20% off and free shipping with our promo code, 83 weeks at manscape.com. Take care of your dick hair, son. All right. Let's get to the main event. Pretty excited about this. On the way here, we get a backstage interview with Mike tonight. Rick is so fired up that he's calling Mike tonight, Gene. Jean. Jean's not even with the company, but for Sabbath, <laughs> I love the green peacock robe. Of course, we got woman in the background. And, uh, we got miss Elizabeth in the background. We've got Arn Anderson there. We got Lex Luger and they see someone approach them in their backstage interview area and you hear the voice and then you see the back of sting. And he's saying something like, uh, you're just going to have to see, I'll show you, I'll prove it to you. And of course we're set up for the war games, super heat here, 18 minutes, 15 seconds, Scott Hall's going to start against Arne Anderson. Pretty run of the mill. The NWO wins the coin flip by the way, have the baby faces ever won the coin flip ever in a war games that you know, of? oh, hell no. Damn it. I think the heels are using double-sided coins. It's bullshit. Uh, either way, this is, uh, going to be a fun match on one side. Of course we know Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash and Scott hall on the other side. It's very clear. Lex Luger, Aaron Anderson and Ric Flair. And then when we're down to the nitty gritty. Out comes quote unquote sting. And of course he starts immediately attacking the good guys, Lex Luger, Arn Anderson, and Ric Flair are heroes here in North Carolina. And, uh, Sting's having nothing to do with it, attacking them all. And he's got the jacket on and the whole deal. Eventually the real sting, Steve Borden comes out and now everybody is like, wait a minute, what's going on? And it's very quickly revealed that. Sting has not turned his back. This is a double cross. The NWO has had someone get plastic surgery to look like sting and stolen his gear, had identical gear made. And it was not him all along. And he's been wrongly accused. Well, once he comes in and clears house on everybody, he looks to his quote unquote, best friend, Lex Luger tells him to stick it and walks out. And this is going to be the birth of crow sting at this point. It's weird how it all sort of just melts together. Someone makes the approach and says, Hey, uh, you know, if this guy dressed like sting, we could really do something cool here. So you have this guy Cobra on the squad anyway, and now you're going to dress him up, do this angle, and then it just sort of evolves into crow sting. But if one idea doesn't happen, maybe we never get crow sting, right?
1: That's true, but there was a lot more thought given to this. You know, once we knew we were going with the fake sting, the NWO sting, um, we knew we wanted that Crow character. What I'm what I'm going to say in a long-winded way is that there was some pre-planning on this and a little bit of long-term planning. We knew we were going with this story once we embraced the idea of the NWO sting. We knew that we wanted to have Sting, the real Sting, be that. Lone. I hate to use this term because it's been so reused for so many decades, but that one lone wolf, you know, he was there for his friends. He tried to prove it wasn't, you know, him, uh, that attacked Lex Luger the previous week. You know, Lex Luger didn't believe him. He went in there, he did the right thing. But at this point he had just lost all faith in humanity because of what has happened to the NWO friends turning on friends kind of a situation. And that's when, you know, Sting was gonna send up into the rafters and kind of be looming over, trying to find the right time to bring it all back together again and fix it. That was the premise of that story. But it was it wasn't as spontaneous as and I don't think you meant to make it sound spontaneous, but it wasn't as spontaneous as anybody might think it was. So much of the stuff we did was this wasn't. This was something that was kind of planned out and we'd agreed Earlier, before this match and before the scene and before the NWO Sting, we knew that we had something viable and we were going to use it to kind of catapult Sting into the rafters or to the next level, so to speak. And but if yeah, if we wouldn't have, if, if somebody, whoever it was, and hopefully next week we'll have Jeff Farmer on the show or, or at least we'll get his direct uh, quote as to how this idea uh, the original iteration, you know, how it was developed and, and presented. Um, if it were not for that, we would not have Crow Sting. We would have had some other version of it, but it wouldn't have been the crow sting that we saw lurking in the shadows for almost a year or over a year.
0: It's just so cool to see it all really fall into place and, and to look back and say, you know, if, if this little thing here doesn't happen, then none of that happens. And, uh, the, the little twists and turns as this, this story evolves are just fascinating to me. And this was such a great match to me just because of the story, obviously the in-ring action that you're able to do with all these guys sort of running around, it almost feel all the war games matches, you know, to me were probably more hype than execution while there may have been some good blood. It does. It does. If that's what you're into, it does feel like, um, a bit of a battle Royal where there's just so much going on. It's really hard to shoot. And then you add the element of the cage and, you know, somebody has got to quit and Tony Schiavone never really liked that because he thinks that fans are more conditioned for the big pop on a three count. And, so there's maybe some flaws with it, but the idea about the match beyond and the most brutal match and the hype and anticipation behind it was always next level. And now with this other wrinkle of the NWO and is with them or not really a great story. Uh, the action got a star in three quarters. I think that's probably a little low just based on the story. What'd you think?
1: Again, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think, look, it was not from a technical point of view. Is it, you know, a Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho level match? Absolutely not. Was it designed to be? Absolutely not. Um, if you would have had, you know, nine or 10 or 11 matches on the card that would have all looked like it all would have been to the same level and the same presentation of Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit, people would have gotten bored stiff with it. Unless you were like the, 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 the 1% of the top 1% of the audience that loves that kind of stuff. Um, this was a different kind of a match. It was a story match. This was advancing the NWO versus WCW, which was the reason why we were drawing as much money as we were drawing. And it was the reason why the ratings were what they were. All of the other things underneath it were very important and helped contribute and gave us a sense of a variety of different kinds of styles and presentations and characters that we could all relate to in our own way. Going back to the wrestling buffet, you know, ideology, but, At the same time, in terms of what was moving the needle, what was driving revenue, what was creating the opportunities to bring in a lot of the lucha talent and a lot of the cruiserweights and to do all the other things we're doing was this story. And this story did a great job of advancing what we needed to advance. To your point, um, this story launched – a 12-month story with Sting, which, by the way, we're still talking about 20-some-odd years later. And by the way, you can still buy that Sting merchandise, Crow-esque merchandise, you know, to this day over at the WWE shop. By the way, you could still s- see Sting in his Crow character uh, at conventions around the world. So the fact that, you know, Was it a four-star match? Hell no. Was it designed to be? Hell no. Was it one of the most important pivot points, I think, in WCW's history that has resonated to this day in 2019? Hell yeah.
0: Great stuff. The next day on Nitro, he comes out and uh, cuts a promo. We should mention that Sean Waltman's at ringside, and when he's interviewed, he acts like he has no clue really what's going on. Later in the show, though, it's revealed that he has a new name. Six. Uh, When Sting comes out to do the promo, he says, I think he does it with his back to the hard camera. I want a chance to explain something that happened last Monday night at Nitro. Last Monday, I was on an airplane flying from L.A. to Atlanta. When I got to Atlanta, I tuned into the TV to Nitro, and I thought I was watching a rerun. And often imitated, but never duplicated. So what else do I see? I see people, I see wrestlers, I see commentators, see my best friends doubting the stinger. That's right. They doubted the singer, the stinger. So I heard Lex Luger saying, I know where he lives. I know where he works out. I'm going to go and get him. So I said to myself, I'll go into this conclusion. I'll wait and see what happens on Saturday night. And I tuned in Saturday night. And what did I see? I see more of the same, more doubt, which brings me to fall brawl. I knew I had to get to fall brawl and get face-to-face with the total package to let him know it wasn't me. And what I get out of that was no sting. I don't believe you sting. Well, all I got to say is I've been a mediator. I've been a babysitter all for Lex Luger. I've given him the benefit of the doubt a thousand times in the last 12 months. And I've carried the WCW banner. I've given my blood, my sweat, and my tears for WCW. So for all those fans out there and those wrestlers and people that never doubted the stinger, I'll stand by you. If you stand by me but for all the people and all the commentators and wrestlers and all the best friends who did doubt me, you can stick it from now. on, I consider myself a free agent. That doesn't mean that you won't see the stinger from time to time. I'm going to pop in when you least expect it. And of course the next week he's out in all black and white face paint and the crow sting is born. And this show is really the birth of it. Fall Brawl 1996. I found it fascinating that You know, the reader poll and the observer didn't really love the show. I thought this was a really, really solid undercard. As we know, not a huge fan of the ice train, Scott Norton match, but the rest of the stuff really, really good. And the story in the main event was outstanding. Um, if you had to sort of give this pay-per-view a rating one to 10, what would you give this one? Eight. I, I can't argue that man. I like it. I think it's good.
1: I do too, and again, we have the benefit of the you know benefit of twenty twenty hindsight. You know, in the moment, you know, if you go back to nineteen ninety six, when whoever you know, insert dirt, dirt sheet writer here, whoever was writing about this pay per view and rating it or or putting it over or bearing it or whatever, none of us, not them, n- not me, not you could have known how successful that sting story would become over the course of the next year plus. Right. So we look at it now, you and I, in retrospect as this huge, important pivot point, as I said, you could still buy this merchandise, you know, from WWE, you can still go see sting. You have to pay a lot of money to do it. If you want to get a picture and autograph, but you can still go meet and greet sting in his crow character. What? I don't even know how many years later it is now, 20 some odd years later. Um, so clearly it was a story in a moment that has resonated throughout this industry for decades. Nobody's going to take that away from anybody. However, in the moment we didn't know that, you know, it, it, it's, it's easy to go back for you and I to look at this show now, knowing what we know 20 years later and say, wow, this is really a great show because it, it achieves so many things. But unless you had a crystal ball Um, you didn't know how important the show was until years later. Um, so I, I, get why, you know, some people may not have liked it and rated it as highly as possibly you or I think they should have, but from a storytelling point of view, from an overall balance of great wrestling action, great characters, great story. Um, I think it was one of the better efforts under my tenure at WCW certainly could have improved a lot of things. I think one of the other things that I wish I could get a do over on was that backstage interview where Sting came in to plead his case and try to tell Lex it wasn't him. If I could only do that scene over again today, I'd, I would, I would love to do that scene over again today. Cause I think it would have come not, not made it, it would have made it much more interesting and much more dramatic had that backstage set it up properly. You know, when Singh just walked in and we just saw the back of his head, you know, in his back, which I know why we did that. We did that because we didn't want to, we didn't want people to kind of discern between the fake Sting and the real Sting any more than necessary. So there was a reason for it, but it still looked awkward at best. But Lex Luger was, it, if I was going to do that over again today, I would have had Sting probably come in. Um, I would have had him come in with a little more um, passion. And pleading his case, I would have also had those four guys. Whatever, however many there were, three guys, whatever. I would have had you know Lex and Rick and Arn tear into him, in the beginning, and and create kind of a pull apart. I would have had that dialogue between Lex and Sting take place while they were each being restrained. You know, I would have brought more emotion to that. that that's my point. There just wasn't nearly the amount of emotion in that scene as there should have been given the circumstances in the story. And I think had it been physical and almost gotten to the point where, you know, the three of them were pounding the hell out of sting because they just were firmly convinced that he had Lex Luger the week before. I think sting showing up the real sting and doing what he did would have had a more interesting impact on the audience. But more importantly than that, I think his final, farewell as the original sting and now you know ascending to become this crow character would have had even more meaning and 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 would have made the story even more interesting because it would have been more of a reason for it you know they not only doubted him but they beat the shit out of him in the process and i think that that could have just made the story stick even harder
0: well we hope that you'll stick with us hard next week um uh, maybe that means you will be back we'll have to wait and see but Uh, we do have a fun show coming up next week. We got really, really good feedback. I don't know what you saw, but I had you watch an episode of Monday night raw a couple of months ago, and we have got such strong feedback from you watching a WWF show, uh, really for the first time and and giving your, uh, sort of fresh perspective and how excited you were at the end of that show when the cane mask comes off and it's revealed that in fact was the undertaker. That I've decided, hey, let's do that again next week. And we're going to do it with a very historic Raw from 1997, um, just about a week after this pay-per-view here at Fall Brawl. Uh, Of course, Raw is going to swing for the fences when they go to Madison Square Garden, where you guys just were here in 2019. And here, we're going to see Stone Cold Steve Austin stun Vince McMahon, and we'll see the debut of Cactus Jack, the character that Mick Foley portrayed in WCW. He'll debut here at Madison Square Garden. So... Tune in next week when we watch the September 22nd, 1997 Monday night raw. And then we'll finish up the month of September with something that I know that you, uh, I don't know. Are you, are you dreading or looking forward to talking about TNA? I feel like it's something you almost block out sometimes.
1: Oh, it depends on the day you know, one of the challenges I, I'm going to have with that show is, th- you know, there were some good things that happened, you know, there, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I'll, we'll save it for next week, but I, there, there's some memories I have that are quite fond and very personal to me that, that I'm, I'm grateful for, you know, um, then there are moments probably more than I care t- to enumerate on, uh, where I wish it never would have happened. Um, but you know, it's all part of life and we'll, we'll get into it.
0: So that's, what's coming up the next two weeks right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff, hit the subscribe button. Tell your friends we'll be back next Monday and every Monday. See
1: you next week.